Welcome to Mental Health Film Comment. This is Brian here with you. The 2020 documentary, The Definition of Insanity, concerns the Miami-Dade County Community Mental Health Project, uh, assisting those uh, with mental illness, uh, moving them from incarceration to a path of recovery. Um, joining us today to talk about many of the, the themes covered in the film is Janet Hayes, director of Healing Minds NOLA. Uh, Janet, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um, I do want to mention a, a couple of resources up front for everyone. I know that there are a couple different crisis text lines available. In the U.S., you can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741. 741. In the UK, you can text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Depending upon where you are in the world, um, check your local listings, as they say. Um, Jenna, thank you so much for, for being here today. I appreciate it. Sure. I'm looking forward to the interview. Uh, likewise. Now, um, I'll not say interview. That's too formal, too formal a word. There's nothing formal about this, this, this show. So, um, I, so I just wanted to, to mention that. Um, but, but I did, I did want to clarify, and, and we had mentioned some of this um, off mic prior to starting the show. You are in a, a, a different area of advocacy than the area of advocacy that I'm in. And so this is the first time that we have someone on the show from your area of advocacy, which is kind of cool. Um, I, I like having the, the wide range of perspective and new information coming in because if there's only one train of thought, so to speak, only one messaging or whatever you want to call it, then that's has its limitations. And I would prefer to have dialogue. I would prefer to have more information coming in for people to, to know about. And, and, and I think it's important for people to know about other areas of work being done in, in the mental health arena. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you agreed to, um, to speak with me today. So, so thank you. Sure. Um, that, that, that said, um, what... What set you on, on, on your journey into the uh, wild and wonderful world of uh, mental health? Well, thank you for uh, the question and the, and the opportunity to um, give some context behind what I do. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I actually came to New Orleans in the year 2000 um, as a recording engineer. Uh, I really, and I, and I came from Canada, I really didn't ever expect that um, 20 years ago I would be doing what I'm doing now. Um, but this little thing called Hurricane Katrina happened. And, um, you know, before that, I really wasn't that politically active or, um, you know, active with social justice issues in the New Orleans community because I always intended to go back home um, where I was more active in those kinds of activities. And then after Katrina, um, you know, the storm pulled the covers off of a lot of uh, uncomfortable truths in um, the city that were going on right under my feet the whole time I was living here that I hadn't seen before and affecting the community that I had, that really had become my family. Um, a lot of people um, in the gig economy, right? Musicians and artists and, um, you know, the um, Black Indians of New Orleans, um, uh, who are uh, really um, lead, I think, um, the city in, in terms of its reputation and what we're known for, um, though they stay marginalized. Um, so it's all interesting. And so um, after the storm, our state, uh, our governor, um, actually Kathleen Blanco, who was a Democrat, uh, and Louisiana State University made the decision to close down our uh, charity hospital in New Orleans, which is the largest public hospital in the city, in the state, sorry, uh, with about 550 uh, beds and about mm, close to 200 of those, give or take, are, were psychiatric beds, either uh, long-term um, long inpatient or crisis, uh, crisis intervention, uh, crisis um, um, care. 
So, um, so after the hospital closed down, we, you know, I saw a huge, huge uptick of people who uh, had formerly been charity hospital patients and were able to go regardless of insurance or income. And you could go even if you weren't from America, they would take care of you. Um, and they, uh, because of the, they had nowhere to go, started being funneled through the criminal justice system and homelessness, um, which to me, uh, and I lost loved ones in the criminal justice system. I have a good friend who um, died in five point restraints in the New Orleans jail uh, after having, um, really she was, she'd had an asthma attack, but she had psychiatric issues. And um, the, the sheriff said she was trying to kill herself and put her in uh, the unit that was this, on the psych floor, which was the house of detention yeah. tenth floor hellhole. Yeah. And she died. And that's what really got me started in that. Or that's I, what I, yeah, opened I'm, my eyes to this problem. And then, um, you know, and, and looking for a solution. Oh, absolutely. And you said the key word right there, solution. And as I had mentioned um, earlier, uh, we're talking about a perspective that's not ordinarily discussed on, on the show. And so I wanted to, to find out in some, in some of some of your area of advocacy, I'm, I'm learning more and more about. And I really, and, and you know, we talked um, at length prior to the show. I really don't like a lot of the, um, you know, tribalism. I don't know if that would be the right word <laughs> insofar as the uh, different areas of uh, advocacy. And so to help, you know, do my part to, to minimize that and, you know, hopefully uh, eradicate it in, in due time. Um, would you be okay with, with just kind of like a basic 101 of your area of advocacy to, to kind of put, put everyone on the same page? Would you be, would you be okay with that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess coincidentally, you know, not quite A to ABC order, but AOT, uh, that's a region that, that people will often see in, in, in news stories and whatnot with what, what is AOT? Sure. And just before I, I get into that, I also wanted to, in terms of solutions, mention that um, so after the closure of our hospital, I advocated the building be reused as a one-stop shop mental health care and, and research center of excellence, which did not unfortunately happen. But oh, did. what did happen is that, you know, a number of people were asking me, it's a great idea. How do you pay for it? And how do you use the space? And that was, uh, it was a bit of a fool's errand, right? Because a lot of what was needed didn't exist. And so that's when I really went down the rabbit hole, not only of the criminal justice system, but also the behavioral health system to research where the, the barriers and gaps are in policy and funding that prevent those kinds of projects from um, happening. And interestingly, the definition of an insanity, the documentary that you yeah. mentioned is yeah. the Miami-Dade project where they are really building that one-stop shop that's needed in every community to help um, transition people um, from the criminal just justice system back to community. Assisted outpatient treatment is one of those programs that I learned about as I was doing my research um, and found out that there are 47 states in the United States that have passed laws. Um, mo- they're all different and their names of them are different in every state, but essentially assisted outpatient treatment or what we like to refer to as AOT um, it's a program designed specifically for a small population of people with untreated and undertreated serious mental illnesses who have difficulty adhering to treatment when left in the community unsupervised as a result of their cognitive deficiencies. Um, and so the program is designed, it's a civil program, not a criminal program, um, is designed really to help people um, stay in their treatment, and then to also ensure that the system, the mental health system, sticks to the individual. So there's a two-way adherence that a judge oversees. That often doesn't happen without the presence of a judge. You know, we see people who, unfortunately, when they leave the hospital, are absolutely willing to follow their treatment plan, take their medications, and follow up on their outpatient appointments. 
due to the difficulties that exist in the system, it's extremely difficult to do that uh, voluntarily. Um, as, a, as a medical patient, uh, of which I've been through an experience recently of three months um, in and out of inpatient hospitalization, it is extremely difficult to get what you need if you don't have a serious mental mm, illness. True. I can't imagine if I had a serious mental illness, how I, how I would have even um, lived. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the system also is a problem because you know providers are funded by, they get their reimbursements obviously from Medicaid when patients show up for their appointments. If patients aren't showing up, then the system drops them. In fact, in assist, in, in uh, assist, uh, assertive community treatment, which is another acronym we like to throw around a lot, yeah. ACT, yeah. one that more people are more familiar with, and FACT, Forensic Assertive Community Treatment, uh, which are those wraparound services designed to help a person, you know, adhere to um, their lives essentially. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's the wrong way of saying that, but to help a person stay connected to themselves. Uh, and be well enough to participate in their goals. Uh, the ACT teams will drop a patient after three um, appointments if they haven't shown up. And, the, and again, the individual then ends up back in the revolving doors of unnecessary repeated hospitalizations, uh, incarceration, shelters, um, and various different uh, systems of crisis care, sometimes moving in and out of family homes. Um, but again, we're not, their, their problem, which is their cognitive yeah. impairment is not addressed. And so assisted outpatient treatment is designed to do exactly what the name says, assist people in outpatient yeah. uh, settings to um, be able to succeed in their lives. It has a 70% success rate in yeah. uh, on average in uh, across the country in, in yeah. cities where it's being, where it's been implemented well. And of course, like anything, uh, key is that key is good implementation. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I like hearing the stories and there's a lot of success stories about AO, AOT. Um, could you address some of the stereotypes and worry that often is part of some of the, the, the negativity that is circulating around around this topic because this is a very specific a very specific population a very yes. specific demographic it's not something where, uh, where where a general audience has to live in fear of this right it's right. a very i mean it could so could you speak to, to, to that stereotype or, or, or concern that seems to be associated without Sure. Well, um, you know, the concerns usually stem from the word involuntary. Um, the, uh, the laws are involuntary outpatient uh, treatment as opposed to involuntary inpatient treatment. And they look a little, laws are a little different in outpatient than they are in inpatient in a lot of states, not all of them. Um, but, you know, again, you, as, you, as you say, it, the programs are designed for that specific population who in and and often that population who lack insight that they have a serious mental illness that's mm -hmm. one of the biggest barriers for people in terms of getting treatment they just don't know that they're sick um and it's not that they're denying that they're sick yeah. it's that they really literally don't understand that i actually uh was reading an article and they read so there are so many articles every day but one yesterday where the individual believed that he was Jesus. He didn't, didn't you know, it wasn't a, um, he didn't think he was Jesus. He know, knew he was Jesus yeah, yeah. and simply would not uh, follow up with any kind of care because why should he get care? Everybody yeah. else needs, he's Jesus. He can, you know, he can work miracles. He can yeah. fix you. He's, yeah. you're the problem. He's not the problem. And, yeah. and this is something that, you, you know, it's not, um, so the programs really address this kind of an issue. And it's not that the, individual it's, it's it's you know there's this kind of idea out there that well you can if you're nicer to people you know and if we treat mm -hmm. people with more dignity and respect and that we honor their traumas and we approach it with trauma reformed care that somehow um you know somehow these folks will uh, 
will be able will be able to coax them into treatment. The problem with that is it's a it's really an illness, and it's kind of like saying, well, you know, if we just if we're just nicer to grandpa, we can bring his short term memory back. Yeah, you know, with Alzheimer's disease, it's not it's just not without yeah. treatment. We can't get people to that point what we, yeah. where we want to get them to, that point of care. Yeah. So, you know, and so the opposition really comes yeah. from this idea that the program is coercive and that anything that's coercive must be bad, um, even if it's therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you had made reference to this, and, and this would be another, you know, 101 uh, learning um, opportunity. The, the 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 word that you and I I can st I has, has difficulty pronouncing this word which I think you'll know what the word exactly bingo mm -hmm. and what what is what is that because I know you had alluded to it just a moment ago but what 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 is that right well um, I don't have the definition in front of me but you can look it up it's um, commonly um, it's commonly used when doctors are referring to stroke victims. Mm -hmm. uh, or people with cognitive deficits that prevent them from knowing that um, that their um, di their disability or their impairment mm -hmm. is real. So um, so for serious so, mental yeah. illness, it would be like it, it's that it's that it's the it's the nature of the disease itself mm -hmm. that causes a person, or that maybe causes the wrong. I mean, it might be the wrong terminology, mm -hmm. but that it it, it um, prevents the person mm -hmm. from, you know, understanding that their hallucinations mm -hmm. or their delusions um, or, you know, maybe their, their, whatever those visualizations or delusions might be are actually, it prevents them from understanding that their delusions and visualizations, they actually live in the visualizations and delusions, which sometimes causes them mm -hmm. to behave in ways that are unacceptable to societal norms could be. Um, people are committing what we call minor misdemeanors or, or acts of violence for the person that's actually committing the act, they're not doing anything wrong, right? They really yeah, believe yeah. that what they're doing may be a heroic act to save the world from um, some demonic threat or from aliens or mm -hmm. to say, or perhaps themselves from their uh, loved one who's with the FBI and is trying to poison them or yeah. I mean these are common delusions but to try to explain to them that you know what you're experiencing is an illness and if I get you into if I if you come with me to the doctor we can we can help you we can help treat those ideas um, you know that they, they, they just simply are going to tell you well but there's nothing wrong with me right they don't understand yeah. there's this lack of insight it's lack of insight it's like you trying to say to me, uh, well, it's, it's like if I don't have diabetes, right? Good yeah. luck getting me to go for dialysis. Yeah. But what so, if that? What if I do have diabetes and it's a life-threatening disease, and that the, and that the, um, and that the that effect, you know, so it's a life-threatening disease that if I don't receive treatment, I will die. But here's the thing. Yeah. When we talk about anosognosia, we're dealing specifically with the with the brain and thinking and thought processes, the very organ that's needed for people to process information and be able to get, you know, make good decisions for themselves. When we talk about alcoholism, for instance, or substance use disorders, you know, sometimes people have a period where they will be in a period where they, you know, it can cause anosognosia. Not cause is the wrong word again. Yeah. I shouldn't say that, but you know, the result of will, you know, people will experience this phenomenon yeah. anosognosia, but once they're sober, it goes away. Now, you know, again, when you're talking about the brain, right, and, and you know, it's different than talking about the liver, yeah. right? If you have a yeah. substance use disorder or you're an alcoholic, it's going to damage your liver. Yeah. You don't think with your liver, so you're still able to make decisions for yourself because it's not impacting the organ that you have that yeah. processes information. When we talk about brain diseases, the disease impacts that organ that is needed for a person to be or able to make uh, to 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 you know put thoughts together in a yeah. way that um, is rational. 
Um, so, in, so in effect, then the the, the word act, which I can cannot pronounce. <laughs> in effect, that would mean someone who does not know that they're that they're sick. Then would that would that be exactly. in, in effect? Fact, that would a be book, a book was written by Dr. Javier Amador called I'm not sick I don't need health and I really mm -hmm. recommend that book to mm -hmm. anyone and everyone who's mm -hmm. going through this experience especially with a family member mm -hmm. um, and, and the book in fact was written um, with the intent of educating family members mm -hmm. how to de-escalate situations with a loved one mm -hmm. to help understand them better it's uh, he, uh, Dr. Amador created what's called the LEAP method, which is mm -hmm. listening, empathize, agree, and partner. So we're not fighting with our loved ones, right? To try to, mm -hmm. you know, get them into treatment and they yeah. don't want to go. Yeah. It's a technique where we're listening to them and mm -hmm. we're agreeing with them and we're empathizing with them mm -hmm. and, we're, and we're partnering with them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it is a skill. It's not, you know, it's something mm -hmm. that people have to learn. I'm excited that, you know, he also teaches the LEAP method to police officers um, and sheriffs. So he, he's very involved in, um, you know, in, in training people in law enforcement and in community on de-escalation techniques and it's very effective. Mm -hmm. But, you know, does that solve the problem? Well, you still have to connect people <laughs> to the system that, that and, you know, and we, um, and so the, and the way that I look at um, the system or the, the, you know, we could talk about the broken mental health system yeah. and a lot of us are like, what system? We've never yeah. had a system. Yeah. What do you mean the, the no system? Um, mm. Because we've never had a full continuum of streamlined, uh, coordinated mm. psychiatric treatment and care from cradle to grave, from A to Z that works for anyone, no matter where you enter yeah. the stream. Yeah. So, and just to go back to AOT. So again, AOT, like you, like we said, it's designed for a small group of people, mostly for one reason or another, lack awareness that they have an illness and, and are not capable of following a treatment plan when unsupervised in the community, but when they can follow the treatment plan, do very well. And it's not designed for people who will voluntarily seek yeah. care and want yeah. care and will go to their, you know, look for those appointments and will take their medication. Still can't get that, right? Sure. Because we yeah. have psychiatrists. Yeah. And I mean, my sister-in-law um, took her own life waiting for an appointment with a psychiatrist and she was schizophrenic and she would, but she would have gone. It's not, AOT is not designed for her, right? Yeah. And it's also not designed for people who will follow their treatment plans but are simply even then too sick to be able to live their lives safely in community without that 24 7 support or without whatever intensive supports are needed again it's like there's no one right answer we need a system that works from you know tier one to tier four so you know for people who can with serious mental illnesses who understand that they have a mental illness will follow their treatment plan can transport themselves to and from places may do very well in in um, peer peer housing right so True. where people live together and they control the home together and there's no administrator there's no supervision but they do very well and then you have folks like you know those folks that i just mentioned who are yeah. simply so sick that they really need that 24 7 on-site support until and uh, unless and until they get to a point mm. where we can step down into a lesser mm. less restrictive setting mm. hopefully the goal is that we get them to that point but right now that doesn't exist so where else do you get 24 7 care yeah. a nursing home and a jail yeah exactly and 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 on that point uh one of the reasons why i wanted to have you on is because you are at a significant advantage over many of the guests that are on the show. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is, and I had alluded to this when, when we were speaking uh, prior, is you're, you've got homelessness on the table, you've got incarceration, you've got the healthcare system. So it's not just mental illness in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. you've, got every, you know, you've got the big picture view of mental health, which, Many people who are on, you know, 
my, my area <laughs> of advocacy, so to speak, the, 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 the concern of the advocacy does not extend past getting better for the individual person. Whereas you're at a, at a significant advantage because you're, everything you're talking about is for, you know, cit cities, um, you know, homelessness, um, you know, a much bigger, bigger, um, wide, wide, wide frame vision, which I think is, um, is lacking in other areas of, of mental um, health um, conversation. You know what I mean? It's because mm -hmm. um, hearing you talk, it's just not the same as hearing, you know, a prior guest talk about, you know, dealing with bipolar depression because you've got all these different areas that are all like under one big, you know, package with with, with a you know, with a with a bow <laughs> on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, well, you know, and you know honestly, what I mean. You know what I mean, Brian. Yeah, and honestly. Um, um, you know, we like to look for panaceas to problems. And the reality yeah. is that there uh, are barriers at every mm -hmm. single intersection point yeah. within our systems, not just for serious mental illness, mm -hmm. also for medical care as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have to look at the broader picture of how medicine works. And, mm -hmm. you know, doctors are really no longer, no longer call the shots. Uh, lawyers and administrators mm -hmm. do. We have insurance companies that tell us how long we can get treatment for mm -hmm. and how much they'll spend on it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, again, you know, when you go down those veins and capillaries and you, you know, you just see that every, it's just, there's blockages uh, and where our blood clots and hemorrhaging going on every, every part of the organism it's kind of daunting to even know where to begin to start um, fixing the problem. Yeah. And so while we need solutions at the highest levels of policymaking, mm -hmm. we also need to be constantly working mm -hmm. at the community and on the ground levels as well and getting those connections, uh, making mm -hmm. those connections. And unfortunately, nobody's really doing that well. Um, uh, I think the Miami-Dade Criminal Mental Health Project is really uh, sort of a model um, that others can look at that has, um, you know, laid the foundations, good foundations for a continuity of care. But, you know, we need to have those major building blocks in place, i.e. inpatient, outpatient, and housing, right? And all of them sure. are a continuum. Um, and then we need to make the linkages and connect the dots between those systems mm. to create something that's a matrix, a network um, that everybody understands um, how to plug into. Mm. And again, so, right, so we really, we, we've done that sort of, we're doing that on, mm. on the medical side of things yeah. uh, with physical healthcare, but we're so far away from doing that with um, mental illnesses. And really we shouldn't be separating the two. Yeah. It should be integrated. Yeah. I mean, serious mental illness should Correct. be integrated into a person's primary health care plan. Oh, and absolutely. But we, we discriminate on so many levels. But, you know, we before the 50s or before sort of Dorothea Dix, who, mm -hmm. you know, urged legislators to mm -hmm. fund state hospitals back in the 1800s, they had almshouses and, and jails and people were um, living in horrific conditions. A part of that was also because we had absolutely no yeah. way of treating people. Um, yeah. There was, you know, there, we didn't have the medications that we yeah. have now. We didn't have therapies and, you know, motivational interviewing and CBT and all of those yeah. other evidence-based, you know, programs that have since arised, yeah. but that wasn't a system. And then we had the, the, the um, state hospitals, uh, which, you know, became the asylums and eventually under-resourced, again, without, yeah. you know, really good evidence-based treatments and medica the medications that we have yeah. now and the understanding we have now, that wasn't a system, right? And yeah. then we let everybody out and they're all trans-institutionalized in jails and prisons and outdoor asylums. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a system either. So when I say that we've never had a system, that's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. We need to build something that yeah. that's never happened before and we don't have a blueprint to follow yeah. so 
you know, it's, there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of factors yeah. involved and it takes a village and no, and what we do do well is we <laughs> exclude, we exclude certain populations and we exclude each other, um, which I think is, it's not, we're not getting, we're not meeting our goals if we're, if we're throwing, you know, we're throwing um, rocks at each other. Yeah. Um, to yeah, say that, oh, one my of, way is the right yeah. way and your way is the wrong way. I think what we need to do is be inclusive of each other. And so then we can go to our decision makers and say, we want a system that includes mm -hmm. our issues. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about these other people. Yeah. So I'm, but they, you know, they <laughs> seem to be doing something. Yeah. This is what we want. So mm -hmm. fine. Um, yeah. But then to not oppose, to not come out and directly oppose what the other folks are doing. And I have an example I can give, but I'm hogging, I'm yeah. hogging the mic. <laughs> Don't worry. Well, well, on that point, though, I did want to ask you, why is it that barring legislation at the federal level, so, so barring, barring that, but on a state-by-state -state level, why are there situations where you have some states where the strongest support for legislation is coming from legislators with an R after the name? In other states, it's the complete opposite, where you have the ones with a D after the name who are, and this is, for all purposes, bipartisan, you know, it should be bipartisan legislation, and yet there seems to be this flip-flopping depending on which state you're in as far as who, why, why do you think that is? Why, why there's this, you know what I mean? It, like for example, in Arizona, we're recording in Phoenix, there was some legislation uh, on a state level predominantly supported by those with an R after their name, mm -hmm. less so. And yet you cross state line to maybe California and Nevada and you have just the opposite. Mm -hmm. why, why is that? Well, Brian, I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, and I, I think, um, well, first of all, one thing that Arizona has done well yeah. um, and that other st states need to do, and, and I would say counties and parishes as well, is to um, create um, interdepartmental serious mental illness task forces, committees, that house in the institutional knowledge about what we need to do in the short term and in the long term yeah and that have those with the psychiatric or expertise in psychiatry or, and, and um, you know, and, and these, in these, um, you know, facilities and agencies <laughs> and programs where the problems lie. So, you know, we need to make sure that our law enforcement folks are invited to the table and that the EMS folks are invited to the table along with the mental health authorities and others <laughs> so that we can educate each other um, yeah. And sometimes these agencies um, have had traditional historical conflicts in the past, and mm -hmm. they don't really want to listen to each other. So the yeah. challenge, the first challenge is yeah. to get everyone to the table and get them to listen to each other and yeah. understand each other's issues. We're all a part of the problem. And we have to all take responsibility that we've been a part of the problem, but agree on where yeah. we want to go. Yeah. As far as the political Republican versus Democrat divide, um, I think that, you know, traditionally, um, since at least in the last seven decades or so, yeah. after deinstitutionalization, a lot of work has been done to, um, to build up uh, legal uh, institutions or legal um, advocacy to ensure that we don't go back to the days of old to ensure neglect and abuse is not happening anywhere in any institution really where you know it could where there's no sunshine no accountability where it could happen um and and, and i also want to point out that when we talk about institutions um corruption is not inherent in institutions mm -hmm. right um schools are institutions churches are institutions hospitals are institutions there's a number of facility type, you know, modalities of, of treatment and care and, um, you know, and, and institutions that exist within our communities mm -hmm. that, um, that you could name. 
but it doesn't mean that just because it's an institution, it's automatically going to, it's, it's a bad thing, right? Yeah. Um, what is a bad thing is lack of accountability, <laughs> lack of transparency, right? And, and, and those sorts of things. So, um, so the Democrats have um, traditionally aligned with civil rights groups, um, which, um, and I have fought arm in arm and elbow to elbow. Yeah, yeah. With a number of groups, especially after Hurricane Katrina and marching for Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter and against police abuse. And we've had done a number of reforms in New Orleans um, because of consent decrees where we've, you know, we've seen, um, we're starting to see better outcomes in policing and that sort of thing. Yeah. But when it comes to serious mental illnesses, without the doctors also at the table and uh, family members, and again, um, law enforcement, and this diverse stakeholder group, right? That mm -hmm. there's probably, I mean, who isn't impacted by untreated serious yeah. mental illness? And if we're going sure. to come to a, 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 to a solution, we have to have everyone at the table um, to make sure no one's left out. Now, the Republicans, uh, on the other hand, have been kind of the law and order party. They mm -hmm. seem to have, but they also seem to have less problem um, with, you know, understanding that when a person is vulnerable, um, i.e. they're not able to care for themselves, that they need representation uh, to, for someone has to care for them or someone has to represent them. Um, and it seems like the Democrats don't necessarily see serious mental illness that way. They have, they're following along the lines of the legal advice that they get, which is patient-centric, that people should um you know people should have the right to mm -hmm. um to do whatever they want to do if they don't want treatment they should have the right to that and so they're looking at a person's legal rights yeah. um sometimes you know um over uh their best interests and you know i have a lot of friends who are public defenders because they've also been involved in um, decriminalization efforts in the yeah. for a long time and public defenders really, this is a real problem for them um, because, you know, they, they often get clients where they can see clearly that the individual is in need of treatment. And if they don't get it, that the outcomes are going to be horrible. Yet they are um, these, but the, these folks are their clients and they are mm -hmm. legally required to do what their client is asking them to do. If the individual doesn't want treatment, then what does the public defender do? So it's a real, you know, it's yeah. a conundrum. Yeah. And I mean, I really value my relationships with our public defenders here who have, you know, they've just created a mental health unit within yeah. the office of um, the Orleans yeah. Public Defender's Office to uh, um, one thing, um, address this yeah. kind of a problem. Right. One thing I did want to ask you in, in keeping this podcast in as timely manner as possible with the, uh, this is being recorded the same week as the stimulus package that mm -hmm. uh, passed. Um, what, was there anything in there that people should be aware of or what, what is your, your take on that as it relates to uh, funding for those with well, all I would say about that is, and it's broken down um, into block grants. Um, and so there is a release on SAMHSA's website the other day that tells you exactly how much money is going to be spent in each state. And those grants are likely going to go to the mental health authorities and the same agencies that funding always goes to, to yeah. do with what they want with it. Um, yeah. And I would just say that more of the same isn't working. Um, we can have all the funding in the world, but if we can't, if we get, if we, you know, we can provide access, mm -hmm. but if we can't get people to access systems, programs, facilities that are needed, then all the access in the world is a golden ticket to nowhere. And so mm -hmm. we know that in 2017, um, and I think DJ Jaffe, the author of Insane Consequences, how the mental health industry fails the mentally ill and I say industry because it's not mental health providers it's yeah. the industry um, he demonstrated but in his research is impeccable that the federal government spent 147 billion dollars that year alone on oh, and, I, um, and the outcomes have been increases 
in incarceration, homelessness, and death. So I think, you know, until we start measuring how well the mental health system does by those metrics, uh, I don't think, I don't see that much is going to change. Good. All right. And I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but one thing I definitely agree with you 100% and one, probably more than 100%, is when you said mental health industry. Um, I agree with you 100% on that because it is. And I have run into that just in the course of doing, not, not just with this podcast, but a lot of my advocacy prior to doing the podcast is that there tends to be a um, bureaucracy. I don't know if that would be the right word. It, it might be a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of, you know, prevailing messaging. And if you don't agree with that messaging, then you, you're not on board. So I do think there is very much a mental health industry that dictates the narrative of what recovery and getting better looks like for a lot of people. Um, so I agree with you 100%. I, I don't know if you were expecting me to, you know, be yeah. <laughs> so outspokenly in, in, uh, in agreement, but that's something I absolutely agree with. And I don't think it's, it's acknowledged enough as it should be because there's too often just uh, a, um, not quite a um, going along with, but just, yeah, I guess in a way of going along with a, a prevailing sentiment. And when people say that it's an industry, they kind of get like, you know, raised eyebrows and you know what he's talking about and yet it is an industry <laughs> and which yeah. does not right and we see the nonprofit industrial complex also happening in every aspect of life so it's yeah. not just serious mental illness but you know these larger systems that have been created that are supported by you know um corporations over yeah. over lives um it's it's not just with serious mental illness, but, you know, and uh, um, so, and in terms of um, surprise uh, uh, that you would agree with me on something, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, that's not surprising to me at all. And that I would hope that we can value everybody's lived experiences yeah. as valid. And I totally yeah. advocate for that. Um, you know, nobody's experience is invalid. Yeah. Ever. No, and, and I meant that I meant that somewhat <laughs> somewhat tongue in cheek, of, of course. Okay. Um, well, and I also <laughs> would like to hear what you think the solution for that is. I mean, there's it's you know these are really complex problems, but um, what do you think uh, would be the solution to the um, mental illness industrial complex, and um, um, and the barriers uh, between uh, systems oh. and treatment and care. Oh, I can tell you exactly what I would say to, to, for my answer to that question is, and first of all, I did want to preface this by saying, um, again, thank you for being on, on the show today. And it speaks very highly of both you and, and your work with Healing Minds, NOLA, that you did agree to come on. And I say that as preface to my, to my answer, which would be, Many, I don't want to say many, but the, the majority of these organizations are run as corporations. They have a board of directors meeting. Anything they want to do has to be run by a board of directors meeting. They have a quorum to meet. They have, and, and the board of directors meeting might be one Thursday a month. If one board members can't make it, it gets rescheduled to the next month and the next month after. So, I would say quit running these mental health organizations like a corporation. That is 99% of the problem right there. You'd get rid of the stupid board meetings. You get rid of these board, you know, that's going to solve 99. I mean, I know how, I know how naive that sounds <laughs> in, you know, in 21, you know, in our 2020 world, I know how naive that sounds. I also know that I grew up with a lot of, and you had referenced uh, art and, and music earlier in your comments. I grew up with a lot of punk and new wave music, where we were kind of defined as do it yourself. We're probably the same age then. Yeah, a, a punk bands who couldn't get signed, and I, I say you know punk bands in a loose sense of the works. I think the Clash were on a major label, and I think the Ramones were on major True. label too as well. Uh, but but barring that, those two examples, mm -hmm. if a band couldn't get signed. They just did it themselves. This is obviously pre-internet era where you'd go to Tower Records and see a band down the street in the import section. But that's 
what I grew up with, with people doing it themselves, not waiting for a video to be on MTV, not waiting for a song to be on the radio, but going out, doing it yourself. Uh, one of the bands I love to this day is Fugazi, who is a punk band out of Washington, D.C. Um, as their geographic location would imply, many of them were uh, sons and daughters of lobbyists, senators, whatnot. Um, had, they had a credo, all ages shows, and I would say I was under 18 at the time, all ages shows, no, no ticket price above $5. All ages, no, which is like unheard of for that era. You know, you'd have Guns N' Roses, you know, whoever, you know, doing ball stadiums with like $50 tickets. And then you go to some friend's house, see Fugazi playing in, in their basement sure. for like five bucks with like 10 sure. bands. Mm -hmm. So that's the mindset. And I want to add a hotbed for that. Yeah. And, and I want to add, by the way, that this mindset is what gave us changes in our society. If, right. if, if, if some kid in Aberdeen, Washington named Kurt Cobain had never heard what he heard, and you know, if he hadn't, you know, we'd still be listening to, you know, Cinderella and um sure. you know yeah. all those hair bands we so have to fight for it right? yeah so i would say yeah every good policy begins with a good idea and then of course once yeah. your idea is adopted then uh your politician and so on will take credit for it and yeah. uh, you don't you don't get anything but so um, uh, yeah so that so is the innovative yeah i agree with you so i, mean, I would say that get, wait get rid of the board me I, I mean you've got the two the two groups that i mentioned every episode because i do think that they do have you know you know, people do need to know about them if they're, you know, uh, you know, of course, need to know is probably, you know, relative, you know, <laughs> in the context. But why are, why do they need to be based in Virginia? You know, and obviously, that's a rhetorical question. But think of all that money just in rent mm -hmm. for some building just to be close to the Washington Beltway. I mean, we're in 2021, where you can talk to anyone around the world from a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Why do you need to be in Virginia Beach, Virginia to affect public policy? Right. That just blows my mind. Well, it'll be interesting to see how technology changes all <laughs> of that. When we had the, you know, when the internet first became a yeah. phenomenon, yeah. Uh, it gave Americans, I think, for the first time, a window yeah. into the rest of yeah. the world. And before that, we're extremely, America's extremely isolationist. I think only 90% yeah. of yeah. people um, when I back in the 90s or maybe even later than that had ever been out of the United States so yeah. really unaware of oh there's this whole European system and a Canadian system and an mm -hmm. Australian system and how come if it works for them it can't work for us you know <laughs> yeah, yeah started exactly. asking questions and I think you know and now we have the zoom phenomenon because of COVID which I guess you can look at as a silver lining it'll be interesting yeah. to see how zoom mm -hmm. changes the world I was on a zoom yesterday with the governor general of Canada and, yeah. uh, and the post had mentioned, um, you know, it's amazing uh, that unfortunately we couldn't have these, this event in person, but now we can have this event with people from all over the country. Yeah. Um, she forgot to say world, but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that I think, um, again, I think technology could uh, really help bring us closer together and our issues closer together to get into um, the, the ears of the decision makers, because, you know, as we both know, the bottom line is that that yeah. infrastructure is not going to go away, but we need to find better ways to plug into it. And um, we've seen it before, but it mm -hmm. takes a long time and change change takes a long time. Yeah. But maybe the Zoom yeah. might speed it up. Yeah, I'd. Um, so, yeah, I think if you were at the table and any mentor at the table, that's good. That I would rather have you at the table than lots of other people i mean it's, it's that simple. <laughs> I, feel I feel and i was actually was on a webinar not that long ago too with a group of united i mean there's been this unification of behavioral health agencies that have not always agreed with one another and still don't um but have found common ground on some things that was announced recently and um anyway i was privy to attending a web webinar with these you know uh 14 agencies and um and, and, you know, there was, um, you know, we saw, I mean, there, there, was def there were definitely sentiments expressed, 
during parts of that webinar that we've all heard before, um, but it was, um, you know, that we're not necessarily in alignment with what we try to do um, at our organization and the population we, rep we represent. But the good thing is that we were all in the room together. And so, um, and I think um, the discussion that was had um, brought us more in alignment, um, but we wouldn't have had that opportunity if it hadn't been for COVID, right? Yeah, and true. So um, unfortunately, you know, it's sad that, uh, you know, so many people have been so negatively impacted by this yeah. horrible disease, including when we all have folks, but, um, but uh, as far as the way, which way the universe is going mm -hmm. in, um, I think we've seen a turning point and, mm -hmm. um, but I would encourage, I mean, I, I, I encourage discussion all the time, mm -hmm. um, you know, as long as it's respectful and it's not, mm -hmm. um, you know, not, um, you know, so that we're, we're not devaluing mm -hmm people's experiences. I accept that everyone's experiences are real and work for them. And some at some, and we need a system that works for everyone, not uh, just, oh, definitely. we can't superimpose yeah. our ideologies on yeah. one population or another. Um, and we need to educate ourselves better on each other's uh, issues. Um, yeah, yeah and, and, the, and the world is big enough at this point <laughs> and, and the slice of pie and the pie is big okay. enough that you know, the area of advocacy that I'm in and the area of advocacy that you're in, you know, the pie's big enough for, right. for both of us, you know. Sure, and that's what, what, yeah, and I have, I mean, in my state, my city, you know, people who um, I have traditionally advocated with, like the ACLU and various <laughs> civil rights groups, they don't necessarily support because of the parent organization. They <laughs> cannot come out in support of the work that we do, and I began an AOT program here with a wonderful judge in Orleans. And um, so, you know, they, because they're kind of handcuffed by the national agency to be able to say, we think this is a good thing and we're gonna sign on, they can't do that, but they don't oppose either. So like you said, the world's big enough, the pie is big enough. We can go to the same meetings together, the same board meetings or committee meetings. We can talk about where we want to spend our money and what initiatives we want to spend our money on. And there's no reason why we can't be spending money on your initiative and my initiative because it represents two different populations, kind of, sort of, they overlap sometimes, but, and in the end, everybody overlaps, but, um, but, you know, we, we, we can't, um, choose one over another, I don't think. So, uh, and we should stay out of each other's way if we don't, yeah. I mean, if this isn't like going down the rabbit hole to the learning curve, like Brian, you and I talked before this, this um, discussion about the, the complex and steep learning curve um, of even being able to understand uh, how barriers have been created in the past or all, all always existed that prevent us from getting to where I think we need, we want to be, which is a complete continuum of coordinated care. Sure. Uh, and it's, it takes a long time to understand each other. So, you know, I don't pretend, look, I'm not a rocket scientist, so yeah. I'm not going to oppose what the rocket scientists are doing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so I'm going to leave that up to them to decide what they want to do. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I think, I think so that's their thing so i think yeah. you know sure i want to know but um well on the on the can, um yeah we can, uh, we can do both yeah. on the the 101 basics you know the unofficial theme of um our our, our chat today um there's something that you had answered ah. before i had asked the question and and what i mean that is you had you had alluded to some of the history and the timeline of it and so, so the question that you so, sort of answered before I asked the question was about, and again, this is my understanding. I, I don't know for certain that's why I want to ask, but the, the IMD exclusion, right. what, what, what is, what is, first of all, what is IMD and what is the, what, it, what is that exclusion? Yeah, you couldn't have asked a question that gets into a more complicated ball of okay. wax, but <laughs> uh, at the very end of our discussion, yeah. um, and uh, I'm just looking at my calendar because I have yeah. something at 11.30. Yeah, that's okay, that's okay. So 
I guess the brief, the, the you know, Cole's Notes version of IMD is in yeah. 1965 as part of efforts toward deinstitutionalization that dovetailed with the um, Community Mental Health Act that John Kennedy introduced um, and that was passed before his assassination. It would be interesting to see what would have happened had he lived. Yeah. But, um, you know, and so anyway, so, so some of the, you know, and then after that, you know, that sort of led toward the Olmstead decision and there were all kinds of, there's all kinds of efforts that have happened yeah. to um, secure, to gird us from returning to the underfunded state hospitals of old. Uh, whether or not that was, I mean, what the answer was, was, you know, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater there, but the IMD exclusion was a rule under the Social Security Administration Act that says that federal Medicaid money cannot be spent on any institution for mental diseases with more than 16 beds. And IMD stands for Institution for Mental Diseases, and it, it's, it's, uh, and it applies to psychiatric hospitals, residential treatment facilities, nursing homes, uh, could be boarding cares in California, anywhere that has more than, it has adult, adults with serious mental illness uh, in the facility. And they, if they have more than 16 beds, federal Medicaid is excluded from um, reimbursing facilities for treatment for those folks. So the idea was that we would have these 16 bed mini community mental health centers in every neighborhood and that you know everybody would be able to get their treatment in outpatient treatment and care uh, and that now this was not the vision of John Kennedy. I just want to say that um, yeah. he did have a more balanced approach where uh, he never thought that we needed to deinstitutionalize yeah. everybody. Yeah. But he did think, and I agree with, that we need to deinstitutionalize those people who can do well in the community with the right supports. Yeah. Um, and so that was the idea behind that. Unfortunately, it really... Um, well, unfortunate or not, I don't know, but the way it turned out is that it was a disincentive to um, states, uh, I guess also maybe even you could say private developers yeah. from building facilities to, you know, deal with cognitive impairment like serious mental illness yeah. because um, it's hard to operationalize that kind of a model. Like hospitals are very expensive. <laughs> And it's yeah. rare, I mean, it's, I don't, you know, and you can, you know, you can understand that to operate a hospital, you need to have a large enough patient base in order to pay your light bill. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why you don't see your hospital, when you go to your hospital, and I don't live in Arizona, but I would bet that if you go to your hospital for a sore toe, they probably have more than 16 beds, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened with serious mental illnesses is that the, you know, the federal government said, no, we're not going to reimburse for that. Um, that said, there are all kinds of little like capillaries and veins in there and nuances and so on. And I don't want to get into the yeah. weeds. On yeah, it, but absolutely. The yeah. short, long and the short of the story is that it was a rule that it really discriminates. It's only for people with serious mental illnesses. This rule does not apply to anyone with any other kind of illness. So yeah. something that we want to revisit, um, you know, sort of this uh, barrier that exists to helping to build up what we think is needed capacity to get people um, like better treatment, you know, rather than just having the insurance company come in and say, okay, you're, you, you know, you've been here for seven days. That's long enough. You got to go. I mean, yeah. the doc and the doctors are left like, I haven't even diagnosed this patient yet. Yeah. And you're yeah. already telling me I have to kick them out. Like when I, where I grew up in Canada in the seventies, or 80s even, you know, you could walk into a hospital on your own uh, and you could stay as long as you needed to stay, uh, two, three, four, five months and the federal government paid for it. Yeah. We have um, yeah. single payer system, healthcare system yeah. in Canada, but they shut all that down too in yeah. Canada. So don't, yeah. and then this is the, and this is kind of an interesting thing too, because there is this idea that if we had Medicare for all in the United States or that if everybody were insured that that yeah. would solve this problem, but again, look at Canada, you know, yeah. everybody's insured. Um, yeah. We have the exact same problem. This is the United States because we had yeah. a prime minister that shut down all of our psychiatric beds. Yeah. But again, and I just wanted to say, on, uh, because I don't want to leave people with the impression that more psychiatric beds is the answer to a problem. The answer to our problem is many psychiatrists who I know who work in these state hospitals yeah. and private hospitals will say, 
Our problem is that we have nowhere to discharge our patients. That's why they keep coming back. We have 50 beds. We could have 60 beds. We could have 100 beds. Um, you know, that isn't going to solve the, 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 the root of the problem of the revolving door. Because for somebody, for my patient, Janet, that has a serious mental illness, a substance use disorder, and 20 comorbidities, this individual needs nursing care, they need treatment for their substance use disorder, and yeah. they need treatment for their serious mental illness. And I can't give them that in 14 days. Mm-hmm. I have nowhere to place my patient. My yeah. patient needs to be in some sort of residential treatment facility that's more affordable than a hospital where they can stay as long as needed in order to stabilize and hopefully they step into a less restrictive environment. Yeah. That, those are the middle rungs on the ladder that we don't have, that the IMD exclusion is not going to necessarily solve, even if it's repealed. Although there's a way to operational or use that money to operationalize those residential treatment facilities that are needed for, again, this is a specific population that, who don't know they're sick and are very, very ill. I mean, True. these are not folks who are not necessarily high functioning individuals. Even we see a lot of high functioning individuals yeah. that are still like too cognitively impaired yeah. to, to, right? And so yeah. the problem again is not easy, but you know, um, and I just think, you know, I get calls all the time from family members and yeah. providers and social workers. And, yeah, and, and ultimately, and I, even yeah. from pet patients themselves who are in crisis. And the first question I ask, or maybe the second question, um, yeah. do they know they're sick? And yeah, the, I can at, tell you that uh, nine uh, times yeah. out of 10, yeah. the answer comes back to me, no. And I'm like, yeah. okay, well, here's what we're dealing with. And then the next comment is always, how do you know that? You know, people yeah. have nowhere to turn. People that are in this kind of crisis have nowhere to turn to. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, and conversations like this, I think, are, are a step in, in the right direction. And, and it's my it's my intention that anybody who's on you know my area of uh, advocacy, um, you know, helps off to what you're doing. I mean, it, it, I understand that you have been. Um, you may have felt like you know people on on my, on my area of advocacy have, have been ripping on you and that, and I don't think that's right. I mean, so I did want to. Well, thank and to you be for... honest, um, you know, I'm kind of busy and I really didn't yeah. have time to look. Um, and so I didn't have any preconceived notions okay. about working yeah. with you. Um, and, and I know that you have mentioned this a couple of times and that it tells me that there's something going on. But honestly, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'll have these, dis- I'll have, the, I have these same discussions with yeah. everybody everywhere I go. Yeah. And so, um, but it's, you know, a pleasure to, to, I'm glad that you reached out and mm-hmm. I, and it's a pleasure to do this discussion. And it's been, uh, you know, I think um, informative for me also and invite people if they want to can visit our website and we have um, yeah, archived can... videos and, you know, we're working on, um, I guess we're we're still pretty grassrootsy, so yeah. How would be patient, people be patient with yeah. the web development? It's coming along, but we're you know we're still working on improving our website. But we're adding resources and actions that people can advocate for soon. But there is one one thing that we've been involved with that has gone very very well, and that is a, a, a Zoomcast um, series focusing on core issues. Um, to do with uh, serious mental illness, and in particular, this the population with anosognosia that lack insight yeah. that they have an illness, and how what do you do about that, mm-hmm. right? And that's under the home tab, healingmindsnola.org. Yeah, healingmindsnola.org, correct? Dot org and then dot org, okay. Mm-hmm, and under the home tab, you'll find discussions like the one we're having right now, mm-hmm. where we interview subject experts and we have discussions about you know, concerns and it's, um, they're, they're, they're interactive and we'll be doing it again this year. Um, probably starting off in the summertime, sort of depending on, again, it's a matter of bandwidth, but Definitely, yeah. excited about, we're excited about the lineup and, and the, and the topics we're going to be taking up. And so, you know, invite your, your listeners to, um, participate if they want to. Um, the only caveat is that you know, discussion needs to remain respectful. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if there are attacks, then they'll just be deleted. 
Yeah, and and that and I'm not, I'm not cool with that. I mean, if if someone's being um, you know, I, I'm just not a fan of that. I'm just not. And I'll, <laughs> not I'll very it, productive. Yeah, no, yeah. no, and I'll I'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, and 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 I look at that. There there are resources available. I know there's MentalHealthAmerica.org and there's NAMI and there's MadInAmerica.com, but also a Healing Minds NOLA as well. Healing Minds um, NOLA, and then our Mm-hmm. And I would mention on our end resources like the Treatment Advocacy Center um, that are under continual constant development to try to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, uh, you know, and also, um, you know, some of our partners uh, who participate in our discussions, Judge Stephen Leifman, mm-hmm. uh, who we've talked about because of the documentary was done about his work on the definition of, an, of insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Geller from the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, Margie Balfour, who you know in your your area, yeah, is a yeah. psychiatrist who's been very involved with um, Crisis Now and in, you know, developing alternatives to policing for people in crisis and diversion centers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we so we've had politicians who are actual policy experts. You know, yeah. we've had we even had the deputy director, um, or he was the acting de- deputy director, I don't know if he still is under the Office of Civil Rights under HHS to talk about uh, information um, exchange uh, to deal with HIPAA um, barriers. But yeah, and it, but there is, about. there is a lot of good info on, I mean, a lot, a lot on there, so. We have a collection. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> there's a lot, yeah. so. Uh, but thank you so much for being here today, I appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Brian. And, uh, it's been a pleasure. Okay. And I hope you have a great rest of your oh, weekend. You too. Thank you, those of you at home listening, wherever you may be. Um, stay safe, everyone. Um, talk to you next time. Uh, bye.